Hello and welcome to An Hour with Charles, your weekly podcast bringing you the best of the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon. Hello and welcome to An Hour with Charles. This is your host, Michael Welch. Today we're going to be looking at the sermon entitled, The First Five Disciples. This is a sermon that was delivered on May 15, 1864 at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington. In this sermon, Spurgeon looks at the section of Scripture in John chapter 1, verses 37 through 51, as we explore the different ways in which God brings about conversion. We have five disciples in this text today in John chapter 1, verse 37 through 51. Five disciples and four different ways of conversion as Spurgeon begins to break it down. As he goes through this, we will see how conversion happens by the preaching of the word, how conversion happens by the movement of God on someone's heart, how conversion can happen because of the unknown and unseen work that God is doing, and how conversion can happen because of a life of preparation and seeking after God. In each of these, Spurgeon encourages us to see God at work in both our lives and in the lives of those around us, while also driving home the necessity that preaching the word, speaking the good news, is necessary if we are going to be following what God has called us to do. This is really a great challenge and a great encouragement for us as we look out to the world around us. We are not to be quiet. I think one of the lines that caught me the most in this sermon was the idea that if you have tasted grace, you cannot eat it alone. You cannot take the honey of God's word and eat it alone once you know what it really is. But you got to get out there and you have to talk about it. And that's something that is seen across all of these spectrums of conversion. They all have one principal element, that God is at the center and it is through Christ our Savior that salvation comes. And yet God is a God of variety and he works in many different ways. I found this sermon to be a a beautiful sermon, and I hope you enjoy it today. John 1, verses 37 through 51. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following, and said to them, What do you seek? And they said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted master, Where dwell you? And he said unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak, and followed him, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon, and said unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, You are Simon the son of Jonah, You shall be called Cephas, which is, by interpretation, a stone. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and find Philip, and say unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was a Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael, and said unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses, in the law, and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there be anything good that comes out of Nazareth? 
Philip said unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite, indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael said unto him, Whence know you me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto you, I saw you under the fig tree, believest you? You shall see greater things than these. And he said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. John chapter 1, verses 37 through 51. If it be true that order is heaven's first law, I think it must be equally true that variety is the second law of heaven. The line of beauty is not a straight line, but always the curve. The way of God's procedure is not uniform, but diversified. You see this at a glance when you look at the creation around us. God has not made all creatures of one species, but he has created beasts, birds, fish, insects, reptiles. All flesh truly is not the same flesh, neither are all bodies the same order. The dull, dead earth itself is full of variety. Gems sparkle, not all with the same ray. The grosser and less precious rocks are marked and veined, each according to its own fashion. In the vegetable world, what a variety of plants, shrubs, herbs, flowers, and trees we have about us. In any one of the kingdoms of nature, whether it be animal, vegetable, or mineral, you will find so many subdivisions that it would need a long schooling to classify them, and a lifetime would not suffice to understand them all. Consider the winged creatures which flit through the air. What a diversity there is between the tiny hummingbird, which seems to be but a living mass of gems, and the eagle, which with soaring wings ascends to the sky and sports with the lightning. The whole world is full of marvels, and no two marvels are alike. You shall never be able to find God repeating himself. The great master may often paint two pictures which seem alike, but investigated with a microscope, what differences at once are revealed. Even those stars, which seem to shine with rays of the same brilliance, are discovered by the aid of the telescope to be of different colors, forms, and orbits. Nay, even the very clouds are piled in varied forms, and the masses of nebula which make up the Milky Way are distinguishable from each other. God, in no instance that we can ever find, has used the same mold a second time. He is so affluent of design, so abundant in the wisdom that devises, so prolific in plans that even he would accomplish the same end he chooses to take another road to it, and that new road is quite as direct as those by which he has formally reached his purpose. Certainly, this observation holds good in providence. What strange diversity there has been in the dealings of God with his church. When he has chastened his people... He has scarcely ever made use of the same rod twice. At one time Midianites shall come up and devour the land of Israel. Another day the Philistines with their giants shall invade the country. 
Then shall come the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Anon the Roman power shall tread Judea underfoot. And as the rods of his chastisement have been always different on the great scale, so you have found on the little scale. God has seldom chastened you twice the same way. You could trace diversities either in the manner of the blow or the instrument you were smitten with, or in the part of your mind which seems to be most affected by his chastisements. In deliverance again, how great a variety. You scarce find two alike. God raises up a Gideon, but Jephthah is not like Gideon, and Samson is not like Jephthah, nor is David to be compared to Samson or Gideon. They are all diverse, and their weapons are varied too. One man uses an ass's jawbone, another must use a sling and a stone. One shall be content with the ox goad, while another must draw the dagger. Different methods God ordains as well as different forms of man, and he delivers his people according to his own will, but ever in the different form. Well may providence be so diverse, when you consider the men themselves, whom God uses to be his principal instruments, are so unlike each other. They are not merely the great differences of race and nationality, nor even the differences of birth and education. But we are all different in constitution, no two minds being alike. There is an individuality about every one of us which will prevent our being mistaken for anyone else. We might by accident be undistinguished, but let us be known, and very soon important differences will be discovered. God is ever the God of variety, and he will be so to the end of the chapter. He will do new things before he rolls up the book of history. We shall see new acts of the Lord. He will fight his battles after fresh methods, raise up deliverers different from any others who have come before, and will exalt and glorify his name upon new instruments of music. Let us expect it. He is the God of variety, both in nature and in providence. My text is a very clear illustration that the same law obtains in the work of grace. There is ever the same kind of operation, and yet ever a difference in the manner of operation. There is always the same worker in the conversion of the soul, and yet different methods for breaking the heart and binding it up again are continually employed. Every sinner must be quickened by the same life, made obedient to the same gospel, washed in the same blood, clothed in the same righteousness, filled with the same divine energy, and eventually taken up to the same heaven. And yet in the conversion of no two sinners will you find matters precisely the same. But from the first dawn of the divine life to the day when it is consummated in the noontide of perfect sanctification in heaven, you shall find that God works this way in that one, and that way in the other, and by another method in the third, for God still will be the God of variety. Let his order stand fast as it may, still will he ever be manifesting the variety, the many-sidedness of his thoughts and mind. If then you look at this narrative, somewhat long, but I think very full of instruction, you may notice four different methods of conversion, and these occur in the conversion of the first five who formed the nucleus of the College of Apostles, the first five who came to Christ and were numbered among the disciples. 
it is very remarkable that there should be among five individuals four different ways of conversion. Were you, however, to examine any five persons, I suppose you would find similar disparity. Pick out five Christians indiscriminately and begin to question them how they were brought to know the Lord, and you will find methods other than those you have here, and probably quite as many as four out of the five would be distinct from the rest. The first case we have in the text is the conversion of the two disciples. One was probably John. We cannot speak with absolute certainty, but it was very probably John. We know it to have been the habit of this evangelist to omit his own name whenever he could. Sometimes he speaks of that other disciple when he means himself, and now and then he puts it that disciple whom Jesus loved. His love nurtured in him a kindly esteem of the others, but a humble estimate of himself. While, therefore, he never omits to record the need of praise others obtain from the lips of Christ, as often as he can, he drops his own name. It is supposed, then, and I think rightly, that one was John, the other was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. The first two disciples are the fruit of preaching. May we not expect to find that the major part of our conversions are the result of the public ministry? The two disciples heard John speak, and they followed Jesus. Let us offer a few words concerning this first matter. We expect, beloved, to see a great number of souls brought to God by the preaching of the truth. The preaching of the cross may be, and it actually is to those who perish, foolishness. But unto us who are saved, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Wherever there is the most gospel preaching, you will find the most conversions. Many of our societies for carrying the gospel to the heathen forget their main work, and while setting up colleges, translating Bibles, and publishing tracts, they neglect to use the great hammer of God, this mighty battering ram, which is to dash down strongholds. The preaching of the cross, the crying of, Behold, the Lamb of God! This is God's appointed agency. Other labors are to be entered into, but this is the main and chief agency for the conversion of souls. Observe in the case before us the preacher. He was a man divinely illuminated. Jesus Christ came to John's baptism, but at first the Baptist did not know him. After a while, however, when the descending spirit marked out the Messiah, John then knew to a certainty that this was he of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write. Ever afterwards, John's testimony was clear and bold. Though he ended his ministry with the loss of his head, he never lost the honesty of his purpose or the lucidness of his testimony. But he continued faithfully to declare that the Messiah had come. Brethren, it is of importance in the work of the ministry that the preacher be a God-illuminated man. Not that education is to be despised. On the contrary, we cannot expect the Spirit of God in these days to give to men the knowledge of languages if they can acquire that knowledge by a little perseverance. It is never the divine rule to work up superfluous miracle. With the faculties and powers we possess, we must yield up our members unto God as instruments of righteousness. So far, then, as the education of the man is concerned, we believe God leaves that with us. For if we can do it, there is no need that any miracle should be wrought 
But let the man be educated never so well, he is then but a lump of clay. God must breathe into the nostrils the breath of spiritual life as a preacher, or else he will be of no service but a dead weight upon the church of God. What then shall we say of those men who enter into the pulpit because the family living is vacant? Or because, indeed, being too great fools for either the army or the law, they must be put where their livelihood can be more easily obtained in the church? How crying is this sin in our times that men should have episcopal hands laid upon them, declaring that they are moved to the ministry by the Holy Ghost when they know not whether there be any Holy Ghost, so far as any experiential knowledge of his power upon their own hearts is concerned. The day, I hope, is passing away when men shall be more skilled at hunting the fox than at fishing for souls. And on the whole, God is raising up in this land a spirit of decision upon this point that the Christian minister must be a man who knows experientially in his own soul the truths which he professes to preach. God may convert souls, it is true, by a bad preacher. Why, if the devil preached, I should not wonder at souls being converted, if only the devil preached the truth. It is the truth, not the preacher. Ravens, unclean birds though they be, brought Elijah his bread and his meat, and unclean ministers may sometimes bring God's servant their spiritual food. But for all that unto the wicked, God says, What have you to do to declare my statutes? The minister must be a God-taught man, whose eyes have been opened to the Holy Spirit. This, at least, is the standing rule, whatever exceptions may be pleaded. Then mark you, granted that this is the case, we must not expect his ministry to be alike successful at all times. For in the present instance, on one occasion, John gave a very clear testimony for Christ, but none of his disciples left him to follow Jesus. The next time he preached, he was more successful, for two of his disciples joined the master, though on the former occasion he read not that one of his hearers was led to declare himself on the Lord's side. My brethren, God suffers his ministers to cast the net, sometimes on the wrong side of the ship. Even a whole night they may toil and take nothing. They may sow upon barren ground, upon the highway, and among the thorns. They may cast their bread upon the waters, and yet they may not find it. For the promise speaks of many days. Still, the minister must persevere. If souls are not saved today, they may be tomorrow. I was wondering as I read this passage whether there be some who heard last Sabbath in vain, who perhaps would hear to profit today. I was lifting up my heart in prayer to God that these words, the next day after, might come true to some here. Whereas the other day I cry, Behold the Lamb, and you did not see him or trust him, I will repeat the cry, Behold the Lamb again today, or that you may be led to follow Jesus. When you have well considered the preacher and his success, I would have you observe his subject, how short the sermon, a rebuke to our prolixity, how plain it was, no difficult phrases, no high-flown elocutionary embellishments, no feats of oratory here. It is just, behold the Lamb. But observe the subject. John preaches of Jesus Christ, of nothing else but Christ, and of Christ too, 
in that position and in that form in which he was most needed but least palatable. The Jews accepted Christ the Lion. They looked for the mighty hero of the tribe of Judah who would break their bonds. Such Jesus was. But John did not preach him as such. He preached him as Christ the Lamb, the Lamb of God, the suffering, despised, meek, and patient sacrifice. He held him up to the sons of men on this occasion as the great sin-bearer. He seems to have brought out most prominently in his own thoughts and before the minds of the people the picture of the Pascal Lamb and of the scapegoat. He dwelt upon this, that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If there are to be many conversions wrought in any place, the preacher must be a man taught of God, and he must persevere, even though he has been unsuccessful. But he must see to it that this be the staple of all his sermons, the raw material out of which he makes every discourse, Jesus, the Jesus, the Lamb, Jesus, the sin-bearer. He must ever be crying, you sinners, see your sins laid on him, you guilty look to him, trust him, there is life in a look at him. He has taken your sin and carried your sorrows, look to him. Let the preacher stammer here, and he is undone. Let him be unsound on the atonement. Let him speak in feeble strains as though he apologized for so old-fashioned a doctrine, and you shall hear of no conversions from January to December. But let him hold this to be his first and most important truth, that Jesus Christ came into the world to be a sin-bearer for sinners, even the chief, and there must be conversions. God were not true to his promise, the truth were no longer the potent thing it has proved itself to be in the olden times, if souls were not quickened and turned to God by such a ministry as this. You who preach the gospel, keep close to this. Behold the Lamb of God. You young men who stand up in the streets, make this your topic. And you who minister to the church of God, give them all the doctrines of the gospel, but still ever come back to this as the needle comes to its pole. Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. In these two conversions of public ministry, it is interesting to observe the process. Carefully notice the narrative. A spirit of inquiry was stirred up in Andrew and his companion, and they began to follow Christ, not exactly as disciples yet, but as searchers. If I may say so, they followed Christ back. They had not come to see his face yet, or to sit at his feet, but instead followed his back as some do who, being impressed under the word, have a desire after Christ and intend to set about an honest investigation of his claims to their faith. While they are following behind Christ, he turns around and faces them. Oh, what a blessed turning for them. It was a blessed turning for Peter when the Lord turned and looked upon him. And in this case, while they are, as it were, following his back, he turns and he looks upon them. And I cannot tell you how much love there is in his eyes. The love of a mother to her first child may perhaps picture the love of Jesus to these, his first disciples. He was God. He was man. He was God's own son. But he had never been a master of disciples to that moment. Now he springs to a rank which he had not obtained before. 
Now, he has some who will call him rabbi and will be willing to be guided by his teaching. He looks round upon them. Even so, when inquiry is excited by the ministry and men begin to search, Jesus Christ looks upon them. With an eye of earnest affection, he regards them and assists them in their search. Jesus put to them the question, What do you seek? A very modest question. Notice it. It is the first word of Christ's ministry. It is the first word I find Christ speaking at all in public. What seek you? And was not it a very comprehensive question? What is it that you seek? If there are any honest inquirers here after salvation, he puts the same question to you this morning. What seek you? Are you seeking pardon? You shall find it in me. Are you seeking peace? I will give you rest. Are you seeking purity? I will take away your sin. A new heart will I give you, and a right spirit will I put within you. What are you seeking? Some solid resting place for your soul upon earth, and a glorious hope for yourself in heaven? Whatever you seek, it is here. What a text this might be for our missionary when first consulted by some of the awakened heathen, when he should say, You are on the search after truth. Now what is it you really want? What do you seek? What is it? Because whatever it is that the human heart in its right state can possibly seek after, all that is to be found in Christ. Christ meets the man who is in an inquiring frame of mind by suggesting to him further inquiry. He stirs up the heart. While the soul's fire is burning, he puts fuel on the flame. They say, Master, where dwell you? And he answers to them, Come and see. This is just how the process of conversion is wrought in men's heart. They want to know more of Christ, and he says to them, Come and see. You would have peace. Come and see whether I can give it to you. I tell you that if you trust me, your peace shall be like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Come and see. You say you want purity? Just try now the effect of the obedience of faith. See if it does not change your heart and renew your spirit. Come and see. Oh, you who are seeking and asking questions about Christ and about his gospel and his person and his pedigree, come and see. The best way to be convinced of the potency of our holy gospel is to try it for yourself. If you are honest seekers, if the grace of God has made you so, then come and test and try. Blessed is every man that trusts in him. This is our witness and our testimony. But if you want to be sure of it yourself, come and see. They took Christ at his word. They came and they saw. We are not told what they saw, but we are told what was the result. They stayed with him that night, and they remained with him all his days and became his faithful servants. My dear friends, if you would but come and see Christ, if by humble, earnest prayer you would give your heart up for him and then trust in him implicitly to be your guide, you would never lament the decision. If Jesus proves a liar to you, then desert him. If his promises be not true, then stand no longer numbered with his disciples, but give him a trial. 
who make but a trial of his love, experience will decide how blessed are they and only they who in his truth confide. You see then the way in which God's grace worked through the word. It excites a spirit of inquiry, then a still further inquiry, then the test of experience and afterwards leads to the giving up of the heart to Christ. The next case is a very different one. The third of Christ's disciples, one Simon Peter, was brought in by private instrumentality and not by the public preaching of the word. Observe the 41st verse. Andrew first finds his own brother Simon and says unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. This case is but the pattern of all cases where spiritual life is vigorous. As soon as ever a man is found by Christ, he begins to find others. The word first implies that he did not give it up afterwards. He first found his own brother, Simon. How many he afterwards found, I cannot tell. But I will be bound to say that Andrew continued to be a fisher of men till he was taken up to the third heaven. He found very many after he found Peter. The first instinct of the newborn life is to desire the good of others. I will not believe that you have tasted of the honey of the gospel if you can eat it all by yourself. True grace puts an end to all spiritual monopoly. I know there are some who think there is no grace beyond their own chapel. They believe that God never works beyond the walls of their own tabernacle. Beyond the range of the voice of their minister, everything is unsound, unorthodox, pretensions perhaps, but still fatally delusive. They hold that all others are out of the bound of the covenant, and not unlike those ancient wranglers in the land of Uz who say, We are the men, and wisdom will die with us. Surely God's people never talk in that fashion, or if they do, they are then speaking the language of Ashdod and not the speech of the child of Israel. For the Israelite's tongue drops with love, and his speech is full of the anxious desire that others may be brought in. Look at our Apostle Paul. You shall never find stronger predestinarianism than you read in the ninth chapter of Romans. And yet, what does he say? His heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. He had heaviness of heart, he says, for his brethren, his kinsmen according to the flesh. There was no man more anxious to convert souls than Paul, though there was no man more sound in the doctrine of the election of God. He knew it was not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but yet he could say as Samuel did, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. See then that the first desire of a Christian man is to endeavor to bring others to the Savior. Relationship has a very stern demand upon our first individual efforts. Andrew, you did well to begin with Simon. I do not know, my brethren whether there are some Christians giving away tracts at other people's houses, who would do well to give away a tract at their own, whether there are not some going out to the villages preaching, who had better remain at home teaching their own children, or whether even in the Sabbath school there may be those who come before God to perform one duty while the hands are stained blood red with the murder of another duty. Your first business is at home. You may have a call to teach other people's children, that may be, but certainly you have an imperative call to teach your own. You may or you may not be called to look after the people of a neighboring town or village, but certainly you are called to see after your own servants, your own kinsfolk and acquaintances. Let your religion begin at home. 
We have heard some people who export the best commodities, many traders do. I do not think the Christian should imitate them in that. At least let the Christian have all his conversions everywhere of the best savor, but let him have a care to put forth the sweetest fruit of spiritual life and testimony at home and in the circle of his own kinsfolk and acquaintances. Andrew, you did well to first find your brother Simon. When he went to find him, he may not have thought of what Simon would become. Why, Simon was worth ten Andrews as far as we can gather from the evangelist. Peter was a very prince among the apostles. And with that ready tongue of his and that bold, dashing, daring spirit, with that confident, resolute soul, there were none of them a match for Peter. John might excel in love, but Peter was verily a leader among the apostles, and Andrew was but little compared to him. You may be yourself but very deficient in talent, and yet you may be the means of bringing a great man to Christ. Dear friends, you little know the possibilities which are in you. You may but speak a word to a child, and in that child there may be slumbering now a great heart which shall stir the Christian church in years to come. Andrew had only two talents, but he finds Peter. Andrew's testimony to Peter is worthy of remark. There was great modesty in it, and that I dare say commended it to Peter. He did not say, I have found the Messiah. He says, we. Whoever was the other disciple, he, he gives him his share of the discovery. Our speech never loses force by losing pride, but generally increases its power in proportion to its modesty, though that modesty must never interfere with boldness. His testimony was very plain and very positive. He did not beat around the bush or hesitate, but in beep, but it is just this. We have found the Messiah. Plain and unadorned was the statement, very positive. He did not say, I think we have, or I trust we have, but we have. And this was just the thing for Simon Peter. Peter wanted positive and plain dealing, and he was a man who wanted it pushed home by a brother's friendly voice, or else it had little availed him to speak of Christ at all. When he was brought to Jesus, observe the process of conversion. Jesus describes to him his present state. He says, you are Simon the son of Jonah. Some interpret this, you are Simon the son of the timid dove. He explains to him what he was, shows that he knew him, that he understood both his boldness and his cowardice, both his rashness and his constancy. And then, when he had told him what he was, Jesus gave him a new name indicative of the nature which his grace would give. You shall be called Cephas, a stone. Now, there is a general plan of conversion. It is the plan in every case, really, though not apparently. Nature is discovered and grace is imparted. The old name we are taught to read with sorrow and a new name is given to us and we rejoice therein. There may be some here who have not been converted to God under the ministry but under the words of a Sunday school teacher or a sister or a friend. Thank God and take courage. It does not matter how you are converted as long as you are resting upon Jesus only. If you have not been a searcher of the word, if Christ has never seemed to say to you, come and see, yet if your nature has been changed and you have received a new name, if there be a radical change in you, I will not inquire about the rest. You are a child of God. Though your case differ from the other, it is a rule with God that all shall not be precisely the same. 
that you are brought into the fellowship of the saints is an illustration of the unity of God's purpose. That there should be distinctive marks in your conversion is quite in harmony with the diversity of his operations. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and find Philip and say unto him, Follow me. The fourth disciple is called without either the public word or private instruction. He is called directly by the voice of Jesus. Now in truth, all men are so called. For the voice of John and the voice of Andrew is really the voice of Jesus Christ, speaking through their instrumentality. But in some cases, no apparent instrumentality is used. We have known some who on a sudden have felt impressions from where they came or to where they tended they did not know. In the midst of business, we have known the workman suddenly check his plane. A great thought has entered into his brain. Where it came from, he could not tell. We have known a man wake up at midnight. He could not tell why, but a holy calm was upon him. And as the moon was shining through the window, there seemed to be a holy light shining into his soul. And he began to think. We have known such things to occur. Surprising cases where men have been planning deeds of vice. Was it not so with Colonel Gardner, that very night about to perpetrate a crime, and yet stopped by sovereign grace upon the very brink of it, without any apparent instrumentality? We cannot tell, brethren, when God may regenerate his elect. For though we are to use means, and cry to God to send forth laborers into the vineyard, yet the sovereign Lord of all will frequently work without them. The word that has been heard in years gone by, the scripture which was known in childhood, may, by the direct power of the Holy Spirit, without any immediate apparent means, turn the man from darkness to light. Jesus spoke but two words, but those words were enough. Follow me. And Philip at once obeyed. What preparation of heart there had been before, I cannot tell. What still small voice had been speaking before this in Philip's ear, we do not know. Certainly, the only outward means was the voice of Christ, follow me. And there may be in this house some who will be converted this morning. You do not know why you are here. You cannot tell why you strayed in. But yet it may be God knows. Christ would have you come here because he would come here himself. Is not there something which invites a pause in the word would as we read it in this verse? The next day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee. Is not there something of the divine necessity which we have often noticed in another place? We must needs go through Samaria. Did he not feel instinctively that there was a soul there which he must meet with and he must go after and speaking the all-commanding, sin-subduing word? Perhaps this morning Jesus would come to the tabernacle. Jesus would come here because he knows that Philip has come here too. Philip. Where are you? You may have lived in sin and despised Christ, but if he says, follow me, I beseech you, obey his word and follow him. To follow Christ is a picture of Christian discipleship in every form. Follow Christ in your doctrines. Believe what he teaches. Follow Christ in your faith. Trust him implicitly with your soul. Follow him in your actions. Let him be your example and guide. Follow him in ordinances. In baptism, follow him. And at his table, follow him to every deed of daring, to every place of spiritual communion, to the mountain in secret prayer, or to the crowd in open ministry. Follow him. According to your measure, tread in the footsteps of your Lord and Master.
and this, I may say, may be directed to one who has had no other instrumentality used upon him, but just the mysterious voice of Christ, follow me. It was so with the third case. Perhaps of the three, this experience is the highest. The first two were told, come and see, and they came to understand the value of Christ. But this one is made to follow. He carries out practically that which the others did but see. The second conversion before us attains a higher degree than the first. But this is the highest of all, when the change of nature, as is the case of Peter, now leads to a change of action, as is the case of Philip, who arises and follows Christ. And I hope I have not wearied you, for there is yet the fourth case of the fifth disciple, which differs from them all, Nathaniel. What shall we say of Nathaniel? Was he converted by ministry? It does not appear so. Was he converted by private instrumentality? He was partly so. Philip finds Nathaniel, but Philip's finding of Nathaniel was not quite as effectual as Christ's finding of Philip. When Christ found Philip, Philip believed. But when Philip found Nathaniel, Nathaniel would not believe. He said, Can there be anything good that comes out of Nazareth? Philip is partly the instrument, but there is something more. Jesus Christ himself shows his own power by telling to Nathaniel the secret of his heart, but still Nathaniel's conversion to Christ seems to be partly owing to the state in which he was then in. He was already, in some sense, a saved man. He was a devout Israelite. He was a true speaker of the Messiah beneath the fig tree. Well, then, there are three things put together. Here was a preparation of heart, which was doubtless wrought of God, but this preparation did not bring him to Christ, though it made him ready for Christ. It brought him to God in prayer, but it did not bring him yet to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Then came Philip's instrumentality, and then came Christ's divine word, which convinced Nathaniel and led him to put his trust in Messiah. This is sort of a composite case, and doubtless there are many in the Church of God who, if you would ask them, how were you converted, would be somewhat puzzled to give you an answer. We find in our church meetings a very large proportion of people who say, Well, I cannot trace my conversion to any one sermon. Many sermons have impressed me. Indeed, most do. I cannot say, sir, that I was converted when I was a child, but sometimes think I was, for even at that time I was the subject of many impressions, and certainly I did offer prayer. Yet there was a time, they will tell you, there was a time when I seemed to come out more distinctly into the light, and when I could say of Christ, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel, but I cannot say exactly when the sun rose. Now this, I think, was Nathaniel's case. Perhaps trained and brought up by godly parents, he had been in the habit of prayer. That prayer was somewhat ignorant, but it was very sincere. He sought the solitude of the shady garden, and under the fig tree poured out his heart unto the Lord. That man is not saved. I, but there is a great part of work done. Do not tell me that that man in his prayer has nothing in him more than the blasphemer. I tell you that he needs as much as a blasphemer does to have an effectual word from Christ, but still there is preparatory work in this man, which there is not even in Philip or in Simon Peter. There is something not meritorious, but still preparatory in the reception of the gospel of Christ. And when you labor for the conversions of a man such as this, and I do hope there may be some in this crowd, then it does not matter whether it be the ministry or whether it be private instrumentality, there is sure to be good result because there is good ground to begin with. 
God has already furrowed and plowed the soil, and so when the seed is scattered, there may be a little objection at first, but ultimately it will take root. Be looking out then, dear friends, you who know how to talk to others about their souls, and wherever you see anything like devotion, even if it be mistaken and ignorant, look at that case, be especially hopeful about it, and try, if you can, to inform that person. We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write. Introduce Christ, talk of Jesus, bring these Nathaniels to Jesus, they who are like the honest and good ground, these men without guile or cunning, bring them to Jesus. Still mark you, their prayers and your instrumentality will not be enough unless Christ shall meet them with some startling, soul-discovering word and shall say, Before that Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Ah, you seeking soul, Christ sees you. Before you came here this morning, Jesus saw you. Before you hear the challenge, look to Christ. Christ has already looked upon you. If you are truly seeking in the loneliness of that upper room or in the field behind the hedge, Jesus sees you. When you are by the wayside and your heart is going up, Lord, save me or I perish, Jesus sees you. One of you has been writing to me this morning and you say, pray for me that I may be saved for I want to be saved. My friend, if you want to be saved, Jesus wants to save you. And so you're both agreed on that point. You, like Nathaniel, are seeking him. And I come this morning like Philip, and I long to bring you to Jesus, my master. Oh, how I pray him to speak to you. And if so, he will tell you that he knew you when you were dead in your sin and loved you notwithstanding all. And therefore he brought you to his house to hear his word. Mark you, Nathaniel's is the best case of the whole. He was favored above many. Who was the first man that ever had a promise from Christ? It was Nathaniel. What was that? Why, that promise seemed to be the sum of the gospel, or rather, the token promise of the gospel which every Christian should carry in his hand. Jesus said, Because I said unto you, I saw you under the fig tree, believest you? You shall see greater things than these. Nathaniel was the first man ever to receive a promise from the lips of the Lord Jesus. And when he was here on earth, O oh, you seeking Nathaniels, I think this is a promise for you. You shall see greater things than these. You shall see yourself pardoned. You shall see your prayers ascending Jacob's ladder and blessings coming down from God to rest upon your soul. I had hoped to have brought out many more points, but indeed the chapter is too full for one to handle in so brief a time. You will observe, however, that I have given you just a glance at the surface of it, which will suffice to show that the means of conversion and the general tenor of conversion will be found to differ in each case. Perhaps Nathaniel's is the highest of all. He receives Christ in a fuller way than any of the others, and he enjoys greater promises than they do. But still, they are all genuine, though they are not one of them like the other, except that John and Andrew may be put together. Judge not, therefore, your conversion by its means or by its particular form, but judge it by its fruit. Does it bring you to Jesus? Are you depending upon him now? If so, go your way. Your sins, which are many, are forgiven you. Eat the fat and drink the sweet, but God accepts you. Therefore do you rejoice. But if you have had a thousand conversions, if you are not resting on Jesus this morning, tremble, for your refuge is a refuge of lies. Your hope is a spider's web. 
God deliver you from it and bring you now to rest upon the finished work and the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And then with Andrew and Peter and John and Philip and Nathaniel, you shall meet before the throne to praise him who is the Son of God and the King of Israel. The Lord bless you for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us again. I hope that sermon was an encouragement to you and something to spur you on as you seek to spread the word of God in your own life. May you go out following these encouragements and these commands as we tell others of Jesus Christ, our Savior. I hope you have a wonderful week. Go in peace.